Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To Dangerous Minds, brought to you by Offscript. I'm Ed Stafford, the first person to walk the length of the Amazon River. I've always been fascinated by adventure travel. But is it an addictive, somewhat selfish escape, or could it be a powerful vessel for self-development? In this series, I'll be talking to some of the people I admire the most about why they do it, what they've learned, and what impact it has had on their lives. What does drive people to endure hardship while leaving those that they love to cope on their own at home? And is such risk-taking a reckless indulgence, or could it be a simple crucible in which one can resolve mental health issues and help find emotional balance in life? My guest today was brought up in Africa. She has swam the length of the River Thames, been part of a three-woman team who were the first to both find the source of the Essequibo River in Guyana, but also to descend the same river. She's traversed the Namib Desert on a fat bike and descended the Missouri River on a paddleboard. Ness also happens to be a great friend and godmother to our son, Ran. Ness, how are you? I am great, thank you. It's so nice to be finally coming out of lockdown now. Yeah. We can actually do this in person. Well, we can. It's, it's, it's somewhat roughing it. I feel like we're squatting in the barn, really, a little bit here. <laughs> I'm uh, waiting for a spider to drop down on me. I've got my ridiculous like booth with the mattresses, but obviously... Um, a little bit too intimate in there, really. Yeah, it's a no, bit I'm liking the studio vibes here. Good, it's good. good, excellent. We've all been on lockdown. We're coming out of it pretty much um, in the next week, um, unless you live in Leicester, um, and that was all announced this morning. But um, you live on a boat at the moment. Can you describe what the last few months have been like for you? Yes, wow, it's been an interesting last few months. Um, in a funny way, living on a sailing vessel has, albeit not in the water, it's on stilts, unfortunately, so not quite as exciting oh, as water? it sounds. It's not in the water, no. Oh, I didn't that. It's okay. got a hole in the bottom. I haven't put the depth sounder <laughs> in yet, so I just think. Um, right. And it doesn't have its sails on, so yeah, not really functioning, but okay. all, I've got a good view of a, a little pond in front right. of me with the ducks. But no, it's, I think it's helped me actually in a funny way because it almost reminds me of being on that in that expedition space, you know, yeah. that headspace where you feel like you are going on a journey. And that is, that's what sailing boat means to me. So I think it's helped massively. Um, it's been hugely isolating, though, and I think, you know, I, I've been through tougher times in lockdown than I have on most of my expeditions. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. The isolation, you know what it is? I realised this the other day. When you are isolated somewhere and you're surrounded by people... Mm-hmm. and they're there they're meters away you know next door to you or just an hour's drive away with all your you know friends and family close by and you're not allowed to go see them mm-hmm. um that's really really hard for me because when you're on expedition you're in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. you have a purpose and an end point you have goals and milestones that you're getting through with that in lockdown we didn't have that it was the unknown when is this going to end what's going to happen yeah. i'm surrounded by all the people i can see them through my windows but i'm not allowed to go and speak to them that's or nice, be in the vicinity yeah. of them and so 
Yeah, it was it was good and bad. Being on the boat helped a lot, but it's just oh, that was tough. Were you completely on your own then? There wasn't anyone living with you. I, I just thought you were with your new fella, but um, he's in South Africa. He's in, so he's stuck. We've got yeah, he got stuck there in lockdown. He was supposed to be coming over here, right? Um, in the final throes of getting all the visas sorted and everything, and then lockdown happened, and I ended up here, and he's there, and it's three months apart, and. It's not fun. <laughs> no, that cannot be easy. So yeah, we've we've been trying to get through on you know video calls and WhatsApp, and it's just not the same, is it? No, not at all. Um, for the sake of the listeners who don't know um, our history at all, um, we met under pretty unique circumstances, really, didn't we? Um, yeah. Um, so um, I was just wondering whether you could sort of recount that story from your perspective, basically. Yeah, sure. Met. Absolutely. Um, I think it was back in 2016. It was about four and a half years ago now, wasn't it? Gosh, time flies. And I had been following Laura for a good little while on social media. And it turns out she had been doing the same. And um, we'd been really supportive of each other. You know, I think that's that's our initial memory of each other is, you know, women pulling each other up, you know, and and really supporting. And out of the blue, all of a sudden, I got a message. um, I can't remember, was it from you or Laura or one of her sisters saying, hey, um, do you want to get in touch? Because Laura is in the middle of nowhere in South America doing this crazy expedition. And I had been following it at the time, so I knew all about it. Mm. Um, We really need you to be there. You know, you had been in an accident Mm. and hit by a truck. Mm. And she was on her own doing the most extraordinarily difficult thing, which was cycling across a continent with no money. Mm. And it blew my mind. And my respect levels were just through the roof that I, was, I just thought, yeah, there was no question. It was, You guys were, I think, saying to me, listen, do you want to take 24 hours or, you know, maybe, you know, a few days to actually think about this? To me, it was like, no, no, no question about it. I'm there. How do we do the logistics of it? Because if that was me in that situation, I would just pray and hope and wish that, uh, you know, a person like Laura mm. would just say, yeah, I'm going to drop everything and come. Well, for the sake of, again, the listeners... Um the thing that I found extraordinary about it is that you two had never met, you know, never. you might have followed each other and had a, a bit of mutual respect um, over the internet, but for you to drop absolutely everything, because Laura needed you, and obviously she'd been attacked before that, which was the reason yeah. I was there in the first place, um, I just thought it was phenomenal, and it obviously, it started the beginning of an amazing relationship between, you know, all three of us, and so you're yeah. now godmother to our little boy it's mad isn't it yes. how that's that's come about and i think you i mean laura was saying i said to her this morning was ness a bridesmaid but i think you probably only weren't a bridesmaid because you only met laura about two months was, before the wedding yeah wasn't it was it? Yeah. such a short time exactly that and yeah, yeah she said that's me but i know that was you know sometimes you just think that the universe conspires and i just think that it was the most fortunate thing that that email came through to me because yeah you guys have been such an integral part of my life and support, you know, over the last few years. So although you might look back and say, okay, well, you know, that's incredible as a stranger to just drop everything and come out to another continent halfway around the world to cycle with no money. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty intimidating, I'll tell you that. Um, You know, the world goes in funny ways because the support that you guys have given me through so many of my tough times, you know, that's, that's, I just think that, you know, that's that's what you've got to do is you've got to put out there the way that you would hope other people would do things for you, do yeah. that for them, and, and good stuff comes out of that. Well, it was an amazing thing to do, and we were 
incredibly grateful again for the sake of the listeners my wife was doing a five-month expedition to cross south america and um, she decided to do it because she was raising money for an orphanage and a lot of the little girls within the orphanage obviously didn't have any money and they were they would be on the street if they weren't in the orphanage she decided to do the whole thing without any money at all so to understand i think the vulnerability really that that you feel if you're in that position and um fair play to her i i did three weeks of it you did a, a couple of weeks of did it didn't you and um it's, it's 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 such a strange emotion walking into um, a restaurant, for example, and asking for scraps of food off people's plates, and you know you really are humbled to um, to the sort of common denominator of needing food, being exhausted, um, not having any friends. There's so many different things going on there, and it was um, you know, and again, sometimes I think that expedition in, in a lot of people's eyes was written off as a little bit of a gap year student thing to do and it was oh, not so all. much Are you kidding me? You yeah. said nail on the head there, humbling. Mm. Never in my life have I been on any journey in any situation that has humbled me as much as that. Right. And also what was really fascinating, you know, from our perspective as people like to go out and, you know, we, we take calculated risks, you know, we like to explore and be in unusual, uncomfortable situations Nothing has ever triggered so many fear responses in my life than that. Right. You have no backup. You don't have a credit card or cash that you're relying on to get you out of any situation that happens. You know, you, mm. you're stripped bare to literally nothing. All that you've got is your tent and the clothes on your back and a yeah. bike to get you through. And, and that's terrifying, you know. It's that reliance, not just on getting through nature and all the forces that you're going through with that and exhaustion, but also on learning to trust people and also knowing who not to trust yeah. That was that was scary. Did you have any scary moments with Laura? Yeah, we we did. You know what? We were just chatting a little bit earlier about this. There was one situation towards the end of it as we came down to the salt flats in southern Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Um and we'd been through a hell of a lot by that time and some interesting <laughs> scenarios. And she was, of course, because she was attacked as well, very wary of people. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, I've been through lots of expeditions before that where, you know, I realised that the things I was scared of were people not wildlife or nature you know so they're a little bit more unpredictable i know nature is unpredictable in a certain way but you can predict the unpredictable within that Mm. you know range Mm. um and we got to a place late at night there were storms brewing we were starving we were absolutely at our wits and exhausted i was pedaling on one foot because i um i sunburnt my one leg so badly that it swelled up to twice the size i mean it was just it was hilarious as comedy um and as we were pedaling in it you know sun went down and we went up to this church and spoke to i i think we he was the pastor that came out and um you know he just took a little bit of pity on us and said okay well i'll help you but it just something felt edgy to us like oh it's a dodgy part of town you know like can we really trust this we've come to a church because you know that's sensible you go to the places where you feel like you can trust in right yeah, yeah. um but still within that i mean you never know and he said okay no well follow me and he got in his bucky and uh, his truck and started going through town in the pitch black and we started following him, you know, main roads, and then all of a sudden we're in, into back roads, and we're in the arse end of nowhere. And suddenly there's no one around except this bloke. And then we ended up down, you know, some godforsaken road in pitch black. Didn't even know how we would find our way back from that. And just looking at each other like, have we made a massive mistake yeah. here? Are we we're trusting in our gut instinct here? Is it false? Um, but we we had to go with it, you know. We'd we had to we knew we had our head on our shoulders, and we had to go with that gut instinct and trust ourselves that we that's what you end up having to do on expeditions. 
And he ended up um, taking us to this place that we couldn't figure out. It was a big warehouse, a tin warehouse. And a few of the young lads came out, and I don't know where the women were, but that happens quite often in you know places like South America where the women are stick to the house and they don't really come out as much and don't interact as much. And so we weren't too pleased about that. And we got in, and he said, oh, you can set up your tents here. And that was where they'd been mining for salt. You could see it was the factory for processing that. Um, and then we're like, oh, okay, thank you so much. He's like, oh, do you need anything else? We're like, no, 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 we're great. We're fine. Got our own food and water and everything. That's fine. And they all just kind of like looked at us. There was silence for a few seconds. And then the kids just smiled and went, night, and shut these doors, locked us in, basically. We just heard a shutter go across and then like a lock go on it. And we're like, oh, my God. Really? <laughs> I've never heard this really? story. Really? Have you not? No, no, no. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's the moment where once again we're like, have we made a massive mistake? Mm. They've just locked us in. Mm. We've got no way out. And we started looking for gaps and holes of if we needed to get out, could we? But they'd locked us in so no one else could come get to us. Uh, okay. That yeah. was their way of looking after us and keeping us safe. And in the morning we met some of the ladies and they were just the most wonderful people. So you were trapped in there all night? Yeah. We were trapped in there all night. We couldn't get <laughs> out. <laughs> So there's moments like that where, for me, the scariest times have been on the expeditions like that where you have nothing, so you're fully reliant on people to support you along the way. Yeah. And do you or don't have you not made a good decision in your gut? And that's terrifying. Yeah. Especially as women, I won't lie. Well, it's, it's a later question, but I'm going to ask it now. Because, I mean, again, Ranulf finds Laura asked him beforehand if he'd be patron of her expedition, and he said he would, but he said... I really advise she travel with somebody else. And so for the first section of her journey, she travelled with Cho, who I walked the Amazon with, which I thought was a perfect dynamic because, you know, Laura could lead the expedition. Cho's a very loyal person. Um, but they didn't get on. Um, mm. and, and I think, you know, she's been quite open about that. And, and um, I'm still good mates with Cho. And obviously Laura's my wife. So Personality clashes. Awkward. supportive there. But... Um, <laughs> But she she left him and then, you know, had had this horrific attack on a beach um, about six days later. Um, from your perspective, I mean, of course, it's it's harder for a woman. Where, where do you stand on this in terms of um, in terms of, I suppose, the inherent um, differences between traveling as a woman and traveling as a man? Mm -hmm. Look, I've given a bit of a scary story right there of mm. you know like do you or don't you trust your instincts being locked into places you know and Laura being attacked you know the stuff that you said here that will really put most women off who have never done this before but I don't want that to be the case because it's not the truth 99% of everything that I've experienced out there with people has been wonderful okay really really safe and really amazing there is always going to be an element of danger out there um, for me, the biggest thing was going into countries uh, and communities where the culture was completely different, where it was unusual for a woman to be out on your own yeah. or in a group of just women. Yeah. And there, there are scenarios and situations where I do think that you have to take extra measures to be sensible yeah. about it. It is a different culture. So work with that. If I need a guy to come with me because it's a different culture, well, so be it. Yeah. You know, we, I'm I'm not going to change the world by going out there and just forcing it, ramming it down your you know your throat and saying, well, I think it should be that way, so I'm just not going to take any precaution. I'm just going to go, mm. you know, and throw caution to the wind. That doesn't really work for me. And it's the same in expeditions. Is if you're going down the Esquibo River and you've never kayaked before, you start putting precautions. If you take calculated risk, 
doesn't say you don't take risk, mm-hmm. but you take calculated risk. And you, you know, that's, I'm not going to take, you know, so little risk that I don't enjoy the adventure out there. But I think it is absolutely doable. Um, when I was cycling across America on my own, um, it was the first major expedition really that I'd done on my own. And so I was terrified. And I had moments where I remember being trailed um, in a pickup truck by sorry to say but you know the guys that I could tell I was in redneck country and they were they were real you know characters like dodgy looking characters and you just know in your gut this is not right Right. this is my you know my heart rate went through the roof all my hormones you know cortisol's flooding me adrenaline and I just knew that something was bad was going on so I pulled off the highway where they were training me for a few miles and I went up to the first house which was an old lady and an old granny and I just, I just started chatting to her. I just pulled out. She was doing a garden outside. And she was really confused. Why are you, you know, who are you all? <laughs> you just like starting up this random laughy, chatty conversation. It was just for me to show the people behind that I supposedly knew this person. Yeah. And I was putting on a show. And then she started yelling at me. And she realized what was going on. Because I explained to her, you know, I I'm just need to hang around you for a little bit. Because there's some dodgy people following me. Yeah. And she just said, what are you going to get raped? You idiot. These young people of these days, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, but, you know, I in that moment across America on my own, I learned the tricks and the tactics and the sensible kind of head-on-your-shoulders ways of traveling as a woman, which was, you know, if you feel something is wrong, what to look out for, how to, you know, if you want to go up to somebody's house to ask for directions, but you get a funny feeling about them, ask them for directions into a totally different Mm-hmm. route than you're going look like you're going that way and bugger off somewhere else but um it sounds really scary but to be honest with you really 99 percent of the time i've i've struggled to be on my own when i go across you know for solo expeditions because everybody wants to help so much and it's so genuine that they don't want to let go of you yeah. they want to tell their friend in the next town the next city and then they want to be a part of this journey and they adventure and exploration breaks people's barriers down um you know where strangers immediately want to be your friend and help and support you because it's so extraordinary what they think you're doing yeah so but you just do have to therefore without not in a panicky manner but just be aware of the different things that you do have to put in place that you sort of recognize that that will keep you safe yeah yeah i I think that's exactly what laura was experiencing actually after well i suppose that was the lesson that she learned having somewhat bullshitly thought you know what i don't need a man on this expedition um and then you know learned the hard way that that i didn't have to be a man obviously you you came out after i did and and her sisters also came out but i suppose doing something like that through south america through a very machismo Mm. culture just um just required a little bit more than one person i suppose Mm. and also to be honest with you to just final note on this i mean i've had probably more dodgy experiences in London going out at night than I have travelling around the world. Yeah. Solo or not solo as a female. Okay. So yeah, perspective. Which again puts it in Really, we can pause as many scare stories as a yeah, but yeah, perspective. Yeah. You were the first woman to swim the length of the River Thames. Um, a phenomenal journey by anybody's standards. Um, what was the hardest part of that journey for you? Oh, I drove myself nuts on that journey. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a nice, easy little paddle down the Thames. Why has nobody ever, no female has ever done this before? Come on. 
Um, and I realized by day five that it is one of the most isolating things you could ever imagine to do. Uh, the Thames is very murky. So yeah. you put your goggles on and you spend 10 hours in cold water during the day and you can't see anything. Were you so, supported during the expedition? Or, or um, I was supported, yeah, by... Uh, I had one person on a paddleboard okay. coming yeah. down the side. That made absolutely no difference because for 10 hours of the day you've got your head in the water, you've got earplugs in, you yeah. can't speak to them, you can't hear them and you can't see bugger all (laughs) and it was you know I was just expecting it to be something so light-hearted and fluffy Um, and that was my first experience really of not being able to it's not even like you're on a bicycle or you're walking through a jungle or a desert and you can interact with your environment I mean this was brown water and it was cold and it was miserable and the only time I popped my head up was to either go and you know you know do a number two because you just pee in your wetsuit um or to eat <laughs> and so right. you know I, I that's where I discovered where my head goes to in isolating times under pressure when you're exhausted and cold and pushed to your limits physically and did you find because obviously I've, I've done a bit of this sort of same sort of isolation did you find it went to negative places oh yeah yeah hell yeah your default was negative yeah. absolutely yes Um, My default was negative, um, and that's accumulation of my whole life of conditioning my brain that way. And I had no idea that it could be that destructive until you're forced. You know, here we go into that voice in our heads, right? Mm -hmm. Is, you know, who is the voice in your head? Because I I don't think it's me, because it's neurotic, and it's it's bloody annoying, and it goes to all these horrible places. Um, But I have to sit and listen to it all day. We all do. Mm -hmm. We always have that voice. And I didn't think it was that bad until I sat in my thoughts with nothing else for distraction, no sound, no touch, no anything. And all of a sudden you have to pay attention to where is it going? What is it actually saying? What are these debates and arguments it's having with itself? And, you know, being neurotic about every last thing and, and looking for the negative in any, any everything. And, and it was shocking. Suddenly I was like, oh, I thought I was a pretty strong person, you know? Yeah. I thought I thought I could handle pretty much anything. I'd had a really good business career before. I'd succeeded at pretty much everything. I'd overcome all my fears and... It's a bit cocky with it, you know, mm-hmm. and that brought me crashing down to earth. And I was like, "Hang on, I've got a bit of work to do here, mm. a lot of work to do here." And I've got some demons I I thought I'd put to rest, but I'd actually just put them in boxes, and they've been bottling, you know, bubbling away. And, and I think it's just because you do have so much space, you've not got the distractions, you've not got your phone, you've not got chocolate or Facebook or Instagram or any of the things that you could normally distract yourself with, and you're just suddenly faced with your yourself for the first time. And it's not necessarily that. The expedition's not made you, put you in a bad place, but, but it does open up a window in which you can, you can see yourself a little bit more honestly. Would you agree with that? Totally, and I think that comes out of being under pressure where you, you short-fused. Right. And when you short-fused, you see those difficult parts of you bubble to the surface much quicker. Mm. Whereas I'm quite a patient, long-fused person normally, and so those were, the, you know, it's like I was just a brick wall hitting me in the face, like, oh, wow. That is a part of you. That is, you know, someone that, you know, you've got this inside you. And and I just thought, you know what, this, I've got to do something about this because there's so many situations that are going to come up in my life that are going to put me under pressure even more than that. You know, I was young at the time. So, yeah, that, that was really interesting. And I think, you know, what's happened recently to kind of top and tail this, that was one of the early expeditions. And recently I went out to Namibia and... I kind of saw how far along that journey I'd come without even realising in that, what, six years or seven years since then. Because uh, when I was with the... So 
backstory here. Um, I went out for about three weeks to Namibia, into the middle of nowhere in the northeast, uh, and spent time living with the, the Bushmen, the San Bushmen. Mm-hmm. Um, as it, it's been said, the most ancient civilization on the planet. We're talking about 200,000 years old. Yeah. Um, and they were absolutely incredible. And they, they still live living relatively off-grid and in the same manner that they used to. Obviously, there's a lot of modern you know stuff that's come creeping up into their society. But... Um, that was something that I realised, um, my internal dialogue, we, we came from Joburg or London um, and that sort of busy life that we lead with, you know, so much going on with work, so many distractions, all the technology, just so much noise happening. Mm-hmm. And I went and spent that three weeks with them and I realised that I had this inner peace, that internal dialogue, that narrative that I didn't like when I was isolated on the Thames. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I'd realized that I'd learned to go into environments in the wilderness and on my expeditions where it was applied in the right way. So in everyday life, I'm neurotic in my head. If I listen to if if I take that voice inside my head and put a body to it and and put that person next to me in a room, it wouldn't be long till I boot them out because they're so bloody annoying because they're mm. constantly niggling and going in your ear and then you're trying to relax or watch TV or get on with work. And it's always negative and debased backwards and forwards and you would never want to be around a person like that in your life. You, if someone spoke to you the way that you speak to yourself in your head, mm. that voice in your head, oh my word, you would <laughs> not put up. You, you honestly, it's ridiculous. And when I went to the, the Bushman in Namibia, I realised that okay, what, what the hell is this person of me being so negative in my head? And when I went out there, it was in the voice in my head and the debates were applied to things that mattered, like how do I make the spear work? If I go out there, I'm being neurotic and worried about, um, you know, the wildlife. Can I make, you know, find my own food? Can I forage? Can I make traps right? And the debates and that voice in my head was applied to something that actually mattered. Mm-hmm. That was about survival. Mm-hmm. Back in primitive times, in our ancient, you know, years, there was a really good reason for that debate and that narrative in our head because it allowed us to figure things out that really came down to our survival. Yeah. And now we're in this noisy world where we don't know how the how to apply that because it's pinging off worried and sensitive and neurotic about every last thing. That new email that came through, that message, who is it could be, is it another pressure thing, you know? Like, we just... It's too much. It's funny how you... Um, it was the, the um, tribesmen in Namibia that sort of um, helped you come to an end of that I mean it was um, Aboriginal Australians that helped me understand that I mean I'm sure I've bored you in the past of the their concept of having three brains the biggest brain being the gut and the instinct Mm -hmm. second biggest brain being the emotion and and this the word that they use for the logical brain is nandupuru and and that would be the word to describe a fishing net if it's tangled beyond repair fucked basically wow so yeah so the concept that you would run your life from here is just utterly ridiculous because because it's an it's an extraordinarily powerful analytical tool that filters all of the stuff that has been originated down in your gut, then you know, mm. pass through your feelings, then pass through the logical brain. But if you let it, if you believe that you are it, then crikey, then you, you you're know, in you, trouble. You tie you're yourself in knots. And, and I think there's a lot to be said in that. And a lot of people, you know, sometimes I I have debates with. I remember having I was at Hay on White um, uh, festival and. Um, got into an argument with a Cambridge professor about all the different places in the brain where activity happened and I just 
couldn't help but feel that modern day science was missing a trick. And I generally, you know, you do little things start to slot into place, don't they? When you hear things like that, apparently 90 something percent of the serotonin in the body actually gets produced in the gut rather than in the brain oh, and wow. things like this. So I do think it's not just a, I don't think it's just this is the way we think about it in order to make our lives easier. I genuinely mm. think there is there is some truth in, in just running your life from a deeper place than than mm. your logical brain, anyway. Completely. Yeah. And I think, you know, just one last thought on that is, um, is that whole thing of ask yourself a crap question, get yourself a crap answer, you right. know? Like, and it's the reticular activating system. So there's some of the science, I agree with you, I think it's far more complex. I think we, we've dealt with a lot of simplistic science explanations historically about the brain and neuroscience and how we work. Um, but I, one thing I have, you know, realized through everything, especially the expeditions is, um, that reticular activating system, what it does is you, you find what you're looking for. You see what you look for. It's that whole thing of like, oh, you, you're going to go buy a red car, red Kia, all of a sudden red Kias are everywhere. Um, and that internal narrative does the same thing that, that dialogue is looking to make sense of everything around you, but you have to help it a little bit. You have to help direct that. And so be very careful about what it is that you're looking for. If you're constantly looking at, oh, the universe is against me, you know, oh, everything seems to be going wrong at the moment. I tried everything and nothing worked. Mm -hmm. That's everything that you're going to get back. That's, that's what you find. So yeah, science works in one way, but I think we're far more complicated than we can ever comprehend. A lot of what you've done, therefore, has been quite gruelling and therefore quite hard and difficult. What's what's the attraction to do those sort of things? What what motivates you to go on an expedition which you know is not going to be fun and giggles the whole time? I think it's human curiosity. Um, either that or I was born with a screw loose or maybe a few screws loose in my head. Um, I just, you know what, I think going through a few difficult times when I was really young as a kid, you know, with friendships and all sorts of, lots of different things as we all have gone through. The one thing I realized is that those moments where I tackled my fears, I used to be cripplingly um, introvert and shy. I couldn't open doors in public in case I opened the wrong way and I I made a fool of myself. I mean, it was bad when I was young, you know. And I started when I was about 18 going through this process of actively, I was I was sick of it. I just couldn't deal with that anymore. I'd hit a rock bottom in my life. And I started looking for things that were my fears and trying to overcome them yeah. and putting myself in that situation. And after enough years of doing that, and especially through, you know, initial expeditions that really weren't trying to go out and, you know, do anything uh, physically to be unpleasant, um, they ended up actually being that. But I realized that, you know, overcoming those fears was addictive and that I, as a human being, what I craved more than anything was progress. Right. That's what I craved, is that curiosity and progress. They ticked boxes for me. And that freedom that came from tackling fears head on. And I became very, um, you know, comfortable with being uncomfortable. Okay. That's where I saw myself grow. And it is a cliche, that when you're up against it the most, when you feel the most pain, when you're going through the most difficult times, that is when you grow. And I also realised that nothing will ground you like being out in the wilderness. And nothing will challenge you like stripping yourself bare to go out with almost nothing and having to survive. And that taps into something that's innate in all of us. We just don't realise it necessarily, is that we all have those primitive, you know, ancient instincts in us. Yeah. And to do things that fulfills that is there's something incredible about that there's there's a sense of satisfaction that you get out of survival that 
somehow the modern world just doesn't tap into. I just can't find anything else that I get that same satisfaction from. I think I totally agree. So would you therefore, for example, um, would you say that going on adventures, being connected to nature is a good form of self-development then? Hugely so. More than anything. Look, A, it resets you. You Mm -hmm. go into nature and it resets you. You, We all know that. We Mm -hmm. all know that. Um, But the kind of challenges that you come up against in the wilderness with nature, with survival, they're not challenges to do with, do you look good enough? Have you got enough likes on Instagram? You know, they they don't tap into ego. They tap into your skill set and ability to deal with change and yourself. When you go out on expedition, especially solo or with a small group of people where you're looking out for, for each other, you're forced to learn to trust yourself and your instincts and your decisions mm. because you won't survive otherwise. Mm. You have to make a calculated decision and go with it. Um, and so there's things that you you reach into that are so wholesome that you will find very difficult to to tap into in our world full of technology and fast pace and keeping up with the Joneses and are you getting assets that you can, you know, be seen to be more successful to tap into that ego. And it's just, I find those sort of things a bit too twisted. You know that I've suffered from, from quite bad mental health stuff really over the years, but I certainly remember the first time that I went onto an island on my own and I'd done the majority of walking the Amazon with another person and I went on my own and I didn't trust myself. It was weird. I'd gone through the whole of walking the Amazon without truly getting to a place of trusting myself and I was so conflicted in terms of doubting every single decision I made. Should I go up and sleep in that and cave and just not being able to have a conversation with somebody not being able to bounce ideas off through me completely so i think yeah it's um it's not just good for self-development it's it's good for just from a very core level understanding who you are isn't it 100 percent, yeah and i think that you know quite often you you nail on the head there i think there's something to be said for going on solo expeditions because that's where you really go internal yeah. And that's your foundation. And we all know that you've got to fix the inside before you can start trying to fix the rest of the world around you. Mm. But we're social creatures at the same time. So we crave that. We need that. That is a part of who we are. But solo helps kind of ground you before that, that, you know, because we're influenced by everyone. Guaranteed, if you put somebody into a group of people for a year, they will fit in to an extent with what those people's beliefs and ways and thinking because we want to fit in we're social creatures and you get caught up in everyone else and influences and everyone else is caught up in everyone else so who are you (laughs) hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
Moving on though, from solo expeditions to um, group expeditions, you were part of a three-woman expedition who, alongside YY indigenous locals, kayaked the Essequibo River. And for listeners who never heard of the Essequibo River, it's actually the longest river in South America. Sorry, it's the third longest river in South America. Orinoco and the Amazon are both longer, but that, in terms of rivers that actually flow out into the ocean, it's the third longest. So it's a massive river, and nobody had ever been to the source or kayaked down the whole river. Um, that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Unbelievable. <laughs> it is just a little bit extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, if I did nothing else in my lifetime but that expedition, oh my gosh, I would be so chuffed and so proud. That ticked every box for all of us both in the challenges and also in the beauty of what we went through. Um, you know, being able to have an international collaboration with an indigenous community yeah. in Guyana to find the source of the river that they lived on for centuries is just extraordinary, you know. And had they been to the source before? So they had looked for the source previously with a group of uh, German folk mm-hmm. and they thought they might have found it. Turns out it wasn't. It was a hell of a lot shorter um, distance than than what we discovered. They didn't find the source of the river. Um, we trailed it, I think, you know, they ran out of time, basically. Right. We And claimed they'd found it. And claimed they'd found it. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to be nice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not, yeah, I've got a bone to pick with that. Yeah, yeah. They, they, pl- they literally planted a flag and said we found it. Um, just because they'd run out of time and it was a bunch of horseshit basically um so we had the time and the resource and we took uh five of their best warriors from the yy community and we spent as long as it needed and it was what about a three-week journey to the source of the river it was it was a mammoth one i mean we were not we thought it was a week away Right. Triple that, and and it was hardcore. Um, but we did it, and we trailed it all the way back to the very top of a hill on the border with Brazil. Um, and I just, you know, I remember the three of us sitting, looking at each other in absolute shock, looking at our GPS, and we've done it, and then looking around, and just group hugging with the YY community because the pride in their faces that they had finally found the source of their own river, which had fed them Mm. and their families for generations and centuries was extraordinary. You know, I think a lot of time indigenous communities in countries around the world are marginalized. They've, They've forgotten about, you know, and for them, it was a source of pride that they could say, we are a part of our country and, and look at what we've contributed and found. And, you know, there was strength and pride in them and beauty that was just overwhelmingly emotional. Yeah. Um, that meant so much more to them than it ever could to us. That's fantastic, isn't it? Because I suppose you could look at that type of expedition and, and from a sort of a, a slightly negative colonial perspective, go... You know, they went to the jungle and employed a load of local people. Yeah. But did you find that the YY brought into the whole concept? Were they were they expedition members, not just employed staff? They were absolutely expedition members, and that's what we went into it feeling. That's mm. what we wanted. Yeah. Um, from their perspective, I think they'd probably had a really difficult experience pre- with previous people who had gone on an expedition with them and, and okay. employed them. Um, I could tell straight away we all could that there was there wasn't the same level of trust immediately. Right. You know, they thought that we were there for our own gains, that we were chest beating, flag planting people who just wanted to prove something for ourselves to the world. Yeah. And I think that it took a good week or two weeks for them to settle in and be like, oh, actually, these are very genuine people. They actually we're a part of this team. We're mm-hmm. not just employed by um, and being used as it were, like we really cared and we wanted to learn from them. I mean, Laura and Pip and I always said, you know, we feel like jungle toddlers compared to them. We were going through jungle school. They were teaching us everything they knew about, you know, their ancient survival. And 
the YY essentially um, grew a deep bond with us of respect because we wanted to learn from them about their culture, about who they were, about mm. the challenges that they faced and about how they survive. And our eyes were wide and with awe at how they could treat this jungle that was so complicated and so overwhelmingly terrifying to us because it was the big unknown. I mean, there's a hell of a lot that can go wrong in there. And it was so easy. It was their backyard. And for us to be like, this is incredible. They're teaching about medicines, how to survive. It was their pantry, their larder, their medicine cabinet. And they saw that come out of us, which was something that I don't think they'd experienced before. Mm-hmm. We went into that genuinely, and that, that was the success of it. That's lovely. And, and are they facing pressures? I mean, for the, again, for the sake of the listener, the Waiwai are an indigenous tribe that live in southern Guyana. So uh, the Guyana Shield is the mountains that are sort of stretched across the top half of South America, and, and it separates um, um, the Essequibo River from the Amazon Basin. And you were starting right up near the border of Brazil, and um, these are the indigenous guys that occupy that area, basically. Um, were there pressures on them? Were they um, were they struggling to survive as a as a community up there, miles and miles away from any civilization? Look, there's no road in or out, yeah. so they rely on any resources for medicines or school, you know, uh, books and pencils and pens and anything that they need. Also, food supplies. Um, so, farine, which is a staple kind of starchy that, um, substance that they they have. Um, they they rely on that. So very very few people come in and out of there each year. Um, so they 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 cut off. Um, and I think what's happening is what we're seeing around the globe, where indigenous communities that very successfully lived off their land. It was tough, but that's what they knew. Have had access. Um, and visibility of the rest of the world now. They're no longer alone. And there's a cash economy that comes into play with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this, this romantic view of going out to the cities and getting work. and, and But that changes everything, you know? That's us entering a new realm where nothing will ever be the same. And I think their challenges that they faced were twofold. Um, I think it was trying to understand how to uh, see the future and pathway of where do we keep our hold of our culture um, and our way of life, but at the same time work with the inevitable change of, um, you know, the Western world coming into play here and the connectedness that our world has. Mm-hmm. And there's positive and negatives to both of those, and it will take a whole other podcast to go through all that. Yeah. But the other but they're challenge... they're aware of those... They are. Those, those, this, that sort of dichotomy of do we embrace the modern world or do we retain our cultures? Hugely. And yeah. we saw in in uh, two of the main chiefs and leaders, as it were, of that um, community, the YY, that had opposing opinions. One wanted to leverage the uh, conservation efforts and uh, ecotourism. The other, you could see him talking about that stuff, but you could tell that it was just cash, 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 money, money, right. money, and how much can we build assets. Um, but it wasn't in a healthy way. No. It was, you know, the, we we overheard conversations and we, we found, you know, some of the guys who were panning for resources. Now, this is a conservation region in the south of Guyana, some of the most beautiful, pristine virgin rainforest down there that exists in the world. Yes. Um, and it needs to be looked after and cared for. Um, and there's a slow creep of mining and illegal logging coming up river towards them. And you could see the guys panning some of them in in different regions to see what was there and at the same time they're having on on camera conversations with us saying no 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 what's really great is that we sing where illegal miners and loggers are coming in from you know brazil so we can stop that happening and some of them are super passionate about conservation and genuine and some of them 
said certain ways that they were, but you could tell their actions were otherwise that they'd been introduced to money. They'd been introduced to alcohol. They'd been introduced to drugs. And, you know, the the idea of traveling far and wide. And, And I think that there's huge conflict going on within those communities to figure out how they move forward. And that that was devastating to see. And, you know, they, they've been said, the Wawai, that they should be the guardians for conservation in that region. Now we're talking about hundreds of square kilometers down there. But they've no access to the right technology and ability and Wi-Fi, really, to do any of that. So And also, it's so tricky. I mean, I it wasn't Wawai, but what's the name of the tribe in, down by Abateri? I don't know. It's, it's, there is a. It's a different um, ethnicity, um, although you know um, they're indigenous, um, indigenous Guyanese um, living in the jungle. And I remember we we hired three separate villages. We hired people from the villages in order to help build a base camp for the BBC um, in a program called Lost Land of the Jaguar. And when I had this amazing um, time in the jungle, loved working with the indigenous guys because. The amazing thing about Guyana is that they all speak English because it's an ex-British yep. colony, so you can go straight into an indigenous village. Mm-hmm. And there's no language barrier, yeah. which is extraordinary. But then at the end, we then paid the... Um, we didn't pay the tribal chiefs because we were, we were aware that there might be corruption and therefore they wouldn't pay them debts. So we paid every single person. And I walked through the three villages at the end because we were dropping off things like generators that we didn't want to take all the way back to the UK and... And it was, sadly, it was just carnage. You know, yeah. Everyone is like hanging out of a tree yeah. or in a gutter, and you know, all of that money um, had been had been you know there'd been a huge party, but the tolerance to alcohol is so little. So, mm-hmm. it's such a difficult thing to manage, isn't it? Because because if there was to be that level of responsibility for managing the area, that would come hand in hand with money and mm-hmm. and and all of those temptations that we mentioned before. So, a really tricky situation. Moving on slightly then, I suppose, from the indigenous um, culture, what was what was the best bit of that trip? What was your favourite memory of spending two and a half months on a river with Ness and Laura? How do I even begin? <laughs> the list is so long. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, I think, first and foremost, uh, I'd been used to doing quite a lot of solo expeditions. Right. And to be able to go out, with with Laura and with Pip and and spend you know the best part of what two and a half three months mm-hmm. out there in that environment with the girls was absolutely extraordinary because the bonds and the challenges that we went through together have forged friendships deeper than I mean that would be for life they are yeah. so so deep yeah. and no matter how far or for how long we're away from each other we just that will they'll never go it's so so deep and that was beautiful there's something about being on expeditions being out in the wilderness that bonds people very quickly I think for me also it's planted a lot of seeds for me about the future direction of my life because and the same happened recently going out to Namibia with the sand bushmen is you see people for the most part living off the environment around them yeah. you see how respectful they are of nature and the the ecosystem and you take what you need and you take specific things so that that ecosystem can continue working so you don't you don't pull out something that will completely transform that and, and turn it into something um that just degrades and with that i mean for example with the, the bushmen the same when we were staying in the village on the esekibo is that you see the relationship between those people and the families and how the kids grow up and it, it's such a close bond um i just thought that was extraordinary and and for them to teach us about primitive skills one of the, my favorite things out there 
was those quiet moments where we're floating down the river and you're watching these guys and they're hunting on the edges or, you know, for fish or they're looking in the trees um, for birds that they can shoot and they're opportunistic and their awareness and their senses go so far beyond what we're capable here in the West of. So we, our primary sense is vision. And that's pretty much where we stop mm. because we only, our awareness is usually only flagged with the auditory side of things if our alarm goes off or a phone rings or someone yells at us and says, hey, oi, you know, come on, bring your attention. And we've got TVs going on and, you know, like adverts and everything's trying to shout to be the loudest and get your attention. You don't have to do any work. Mm. I think whoever shouts the loudest or whatever shouts the loudest, you pay attention to, right? Um, visually, we just, you know, we've got such, everything's so confined by rules. Okay, well, the roads do this and it's so... It's all automated. You're not challenged in any way. When you go out with the guys on the Esquibo River, every single sense, their sight, their hearing, their smell, touch, sound, and also gut instinct. There's almost six sense of awareness because they have decades and generations worth of understanding the behavior of animals, the cycle of the ecosystem around them, daily, monthly, yearly. They understand a depth of knowledge about an environment that we could only ever hope for like getting a fraction of. So when they go out and they try and teach you how to hunt or try to teach you how to track, we can tap into a few top layers of that. But you're going to have to spend decades to learn the depth of knowledge. They just instinctively, and you don't know, it's almost like by magic that they found or saw something or hunted and able to get because you just wouldn't have a clue. The guys are standing there pointing to a tree, a bush above us, and, you know, can you see what's there? And you're looking and you're, you know, five metres away and, you know, you paddle forward. Two metres away, you're looking. One metre away, you're looking. You're this far away and finally see the bloody snake right in front of you. <laughs> and the guy saw it from about 100 metres away. I can't see it from one metre away. I mean, it's just the, the, the tuning into the environment is extraordinary. And to witness that, especially because I do see indigenous communities changing and less and less living off the environment in that way, you know. And, and I'm so grateful that I can try and go on a few of these expeditions now that in 50 years' time I don't know where those skills are going to be anymore because the youngsters are leaving. They're going to the cities for work. They're, mm-hmm. they're not picking up on those skill sets and languages as well. So, what, what, yeah. was, was that the reason that this Namibia trip came up for you? Did you deliberately go after trying to trying to immerse yourself within an indigenous culture in order to learn new skills? How, how did that come about? There wasn't an expedition as such, was it? No. Namibia and the Sand Bushmen was training. Uh, I am absolutely fascinated by ancient and primitive skill sets. Okay. As I said previously, there's something satisfying. It taps into, uh, you know, it, it challenges you in a way and it satisfies you in a way that few things I've ever felt can. Um, and there's also there's a wisdom in it. You know, we're in such a fast paced world where things just go crazy. I can lose myself so easily. And that, that resets you and grounds you again, being around people like that, because the value systems and the standards that they have about how a community works is phenomenal. Now I'd heard that the Sandbushmen were the most ancient civilization on the planet. They also, interestingly, don't have a hierarchy of leadership. So there's no chief. Everybody is on the same level. And so when they go hunting, that's spread out between everyone. Yes, you have the guy who did the hunt. You can have the first pick of, you know, which part he wants. But it's, you know, they also, funny enough, they, they fascinated me because I'd heard stories that um, they don't know how to say no. 
and it's just there was just a whole culture and way of being and way living way of living that really I was curious about. At the same time, they had skill sets when it comes to going hunting and foraging and trap making that were second to none. These guys go through entire winters with no water source. They just live off roots. Mm. We their bodies are adapted in ways that we could never dream of being. Yeah. I would not even if I could lift off through I would not survive like they can. So it was just, yeah, for me it was training and it was also a value system and also a fascination with the history and also the future of where they're going. Yeah, I mean, I pitched an idea to Discovery Channel a couple of years ago. I think it was, the title was rubbish, but it was called Saving Tribal Wisdom. But I think there is definitely a generation of elders who have a huge amount to pass on. There's a generation of young tribal people who just want to go to the local town and get a mobile phone and you know and they they want to they want the attractive parts of modern society you know and then and then on top of that there's another layer of a of a global society who's in desperate need of this old wisdom of of, of a way of living that doesn't impact the planet of a way of, of of organizing communities so that they can all get on but yeah it didn't come to anything unfortunately but um it's one of those times isn't it and i i often find when I'm going to film episodes of whatever um, survival show that I'm doing, that you know, I'm always learning new stuff off the guys. You know, it's like there's always some incredible local guy who just knows everything. And so, you know, never are you even dreaming of to to get your trap to the level of expertise that, are you that he's me? done. <laughs> but you know, if you can just learn a little bit, then mm. hopefully you build it and you understand the principles of how it works. And you go, ah, oh, that's brilliant. And mm. you know, yeah, no, it always it always blows my mind. But you know, I genuinely don't think anyone should call themselves a a bushcraft expert. And, no, uh, no, no, no one is born in England and or born in Leicester. Or were you born in this country? Or were you born in? Africa? I was born in Johannesburg in South Africa, which is part of the reason why I was interested in going to do some training in Southern Africa. Yeah. Um, so. Which is home to you now, England or South Africa? Oh, look, you know, the, the soil of Africa will always be a part of you. That's right. that's your roots, you know. Um, but home for the future will be England. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm setting in, yeah, I'm saying roots down here too now. Yes. That'd and be quite nomadic. a big smile on your face saying that. <laughs> so, okay, so how does life look like? The last time I physically saw you, you were training to and trying to get funding for an expedition to row across the Atlantic. What happened there? The Pacific, yes. Pacific, um, sorry. Yeah. You know what? I moved on as a person. Okay. Um, that was in the final stages and throes of me needing to prove something to myself and the world. Okay. So now I have to go find the longest expedition to cross the, the entire Pacific Ocean from North America to Australia. That would have taken nine months, men on my own in an ocean rowing boat my poor mother bless her soul I think she's very happy about my decisions yeah. nowadays <laughs> um, yeah that that's that evolved um, that all fell apart uh, I was supposed to go out for some training and I went across to America and a whole lot of shit went down and I had to pull the plug on that for other people pulling the plug on it themselves anyway I evolved that into some stuff uh, in the UK and I do still have an expedition that will be sailing around the UK. Oh, nice. I was going to row around the UK, then I changed it to sailing because I can interact more. (laughs) Um, And yeah, that was a part of me realising that actually there's stories that I want to gather from places around the world that require me not just going out and proving how hard and physically capable I am yeah. and mentally capable I am there's more important things than to than that to go and discover 
which means that I can't go solo anymore. I also don't have anything to prove to myself. And I realize that's not because I have proved a lot by what I've done, but there's just no need for it in the first place. Well, I think it proves that you've come a long way. It, it, it makes me happy to hear you say that, actually, because I do sometimes feel like, you know, you needed to do the expeditions that you've done to this date to get yourself to this date. And, like, mm-hmm. I needed to walk the Amazon. But, you know, I do sometimes... Um, look at other explorers who just keep going and going and going think, thinking if you've not if you've not scratched the itch that you were trying to sketch 20 years ago when you were doing this I mean it's a big task and it does make me I mean it's the point of this whole podcast really is to why some people just keep having to go and whether and whether you can reach a point where you go do you know what for many sort of dysfunctional reasons or whatever I was attracted to expeditions and it gave me this incredible vehicle with which to grow within mm-hmm. but I've got there you know and I think mm. there is the, the, the lovely thing in hearing you say that is because you definitely have got there I mean you seem to be oh, 100% in, seem to be in a really good place and life's yeah. exciting and you don't yeah. therefore have to sort of be frantically proving yourself so I you know to be totally blunt and honest and I've never really spoken about this before I, I went through I mean I've gone through depression uh, num- you know not too many years ago I went through a really dark time you guys saw that happening the tail end of that yeah. um, a lot of internal battles going on and I I mean I remember days where believe it or not this everyone saw on social media this you know big strong fearless female explorer going around the world you know and that's what I showcased and meanwhile I was posting you know old stories from those expeditions while I was sat in bed and I remember one time it was about midday and I still hadn't left bed and I didn't even have the energy to lean over and take a sip of the cold cup of coffee next to me from the night before Mm. because I was so depressed I couldn't even be bothered to move my arm I was in just such a dark place Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, a, a exploration really helped me work through that. And I've got to the place now where it's done its job. You know, like I think my expeditions were trying to fill a gap and, a, a you know, it wasn't all the only reason why, but it was a big part of it that, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I was, I was just trying to fill something like a, a, a sense of wholeness in myself. Maybe if I proved things, then I would feel good and have self-esteem. Yeah. Um, to be blunt, and it's almost embarrassing to say that, but it's not at the same time. It's I'm human. Yeah. Um, yes. And I've got to the point now where I've done stuff that forced me to listen, like we spoke earlier, about my internal narrative, to face some demons, to really do the hard work and the hard graft, which isn't just distraction by going off, but actually doing the hard work to figure yourself out and understand how you work. And, you know, just spend time trying to process all the difficult shit that's the baggage that we've held on to and then coming out of that and you know realizing that finally i mean i've got a long way to go still but i'm in a healthy space i think for me it's it's the it's the grueling things it's the things that you know you wouldn't enjoy but you want to do because you want to be the first to for example walk the amazon and like they're the things that don't interest me in the slightest anymore if i'm going to do something because the outdoors is an amazing thing but i want to do something that's either exciting or, or fascinating or is going to teach me new skills or challenge me on a different level i don't just want to sweat and toil and you mm. know in order for other people to then go oh well then you're the we recognize you as the first it just seems nonsensical now really. completely i could you've said it so perfectly yeah. that's exactly how i feel about everything and i'm in the same space where for me now, it's about the, the primitive and ancient skill sets and challenging myself in exciting ways now. 
Nice. So yeah. So practically, how does that manifest then? What what are you going to still be an adventurer? Are you going to do this full time? Um, I know we spoke a bit in the kitchen before before yeah. we came up here. But you know, <laughs> how does the future look for you? So the future is looking so so exciting. Honestly, I just feel like at thirty five, it's all clicking together, and I get life finally. It's taken okay. a while, but I get it. Um, I've been nomadic for many years now and I've, I've barely put my suitcase down. Um, and I want, I found the most extraordinary man that I could ever have dreamed of finding. And, you know, we're set for life and we want to put down roots and we want a nest together. Um, and from a lot of my expeditions, I've just really connected with being self-sufficient and self, you know, sustaining your own food and your own way of living and having your own, um, you know, produce that you live off of. And that really connected with me from these indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that healthy way of being and growing kids up in an environment where there was outdoors and, you know, their own veg and meat and they knew where it was come from. If you want chicken, well, there's a chicken out there, mate, you know, <laughs> let me show you how to do it. Yeah. Um, that really appeals and uh, Jake my man he actually happened luckily for me to want to do farming since he was three okay and so we're going to set up our own farm in the near future so we're looking for land right now and it's a very exciting new chapter so part of my time will be that is Mm -hmm. looking towards that nest um, and a future and a family together the other part of that will be using that farmland and that time um, that I have to continue with my skills in ancient primitive survival. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give that up because that feeds so much of my passion in life. And it's something that is, I, I just love, I'll never go away. So it'll be navigating a balance between the two worlds. I mean, farming has a season um, and it'll leave me with, you know, four months of the winter completely free. And, you know, I can pop off here and there to do bits and pieces. Yeah. But I'm no longer in the space where I'm going to be doing two, three months away on long extended expeditions. This is about taking a week or two weeks yeah. in a way like what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost the same setup that you and Laura have here. You know, you've got a family growing, you've got space, you've got uh, a nest, you've got roots down and you have all of the beauty of that and that stability in your heart and in your mind and your soul. But you still get to go out there and explore the bits of you that, you know, keep you an individual and excited and challenged and vibrant and, you know, working on your passion. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is become a slightly older, fatter, much more boring <laughs> version of yourself, isn't it? Now that no one wants to see that. that you either of us do that. Well, it's interesting yeah. you hear the, the bushcraft side of it. I'm just about to set up a... Um, a uh, bushcraft school so um it definitely wants to have a chat with you as soon as we turn the microphones off sounds good to me <laughs> absolutely that. that would be ace ness an absolute pleasure talking to you um it's been really cool we haven't seen each other for ages and it's just been lovely to chat up and you're in such a chatter <laughs> it's just been really lovely <laughs> to catch up um and you yeah. seem in such a good place it's just so, so lovely to see so thank oh, you thank much. you so much yeah what a good way to catch up after yeah. such a long time with loads of microphones pointing at you i yeah. know <laughs> no thank you thank you Cheers, subscribe on apple podcasts and all other podcast platforms to get new episodes first thing every monday Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 